0: hello everyone and welcome to celebrating cinema this is a special from can
1: yeah <laughs> <laughs> need i say more hugo tell us how is it in can it's very good today i had a very chilled day i've only seen one film because i already saw a film that's playing here in the netherlands so i was kind of scot-free which is good because we're a bit over the health of the festival so normally i would be dead and tired at this point and i'm still going strong so it's great it's it's fucking hot uh, the weather is insane but the lines are very short because of corona and everything so it's kind of chilled so I'm doing good it's great uh,
2: how was that whole process? I mean I, I heard some things from programmers and other people from the film industry that it was quite a hassle with those saliva tests and stuff like oh, that oh yeah
1: they're all ungrateful bitches <laughs> <laughs> like
2: it's, this
1: is my fifth year in Cannes uh, now and it's the most chilled I've experienced I've had so far so yeah, I'm already fully vaccinated, but I also have to test uh, for Corona once every two days because my vaccine isn't long ago enough. And it's cool. You just need to produce a lot of saliva, like more than you would ever think you would have to produce. And then they test that and it works fairly well. But at the beginning, nothing worked well. And that's always the case with can. It has its, you know, uh, as we would say in Dutch, children's diseases. And they fix it as we go. And right now, it's literally the most comfortable festival experience I've had here so far.
2: So it's safe, like the booing and the cheering, uh, you know?
1: Mm, Yeah, I mean, it's safer than in the Netherlands, but I want to keep it at that.
0: (laughs) I'm not sure how much safer it is. And Tom, how are you feeling?
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm doing well, but I am here in humid, breezy, I hate this weather, Holland. And you're there uh, uh, traversing the crossettes with your film pal so yeah i'm i am the jealous guy in this conversation absolutely
1: <laughs> you're the brain fairy to my brain you <laughs> yeah
2: Exactly. Yeah. I like, last year was going to be uh, the first year that we would go, but then, of course, the festival sort of evaporated and went online. So, and this year, like, money-wise, it wouldn't make any sense to do it for us. So, hopefully, I'll be joining you next year. Yeah. But of course, my question is, like, what am I missing from this experience? What What is for you like the can experience?
1: Yeah, well, this year is kind of special because, like, last year the festival got cancelled, which is the first time in the history since the Second World War and the Nazi occupation that the edition of the Cannes Film Festival was cancelled. So for many people, it has this big historic value that uh, last year Cannes couldn't happen because of COVID, and this year it is happening. And you kind of see it also in the films because uh, usually... The main competition, which is, of course, maybe the most prestigious slot a film can have in the film festival circuit internationally, is quite dense and compact, even though it's, you know, still pretty big. But this year, it's so expanded. There's like 24 films in the main competition only. And then all the other sidebars, there's all these different other competitions already have so much more films as well. So... There's, I guess, kind of like a record number of films playing at Cannes. And it's also a crop of films from the last two years. So on paper, this should be one of the best festival editions ever, because you basically have two years to get the best (laughs) films out there to the festival. Thanks.
2: Great. That's great to hear. Absolutely fantastic.
1: A big relief is that luckily there are still some huge thinkers in the main competition which I'm all watching because I'm in a jury for International Film Critics Federation. So I have to see all the films in the main competition and give a prize to one of them. Uh, One in 24 and there's some really really bad films in the competition <laughs> so still. let's
2: talk about those films like i mean i i've been alone at home watching the 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 news of everything pouring in especially about a film i think you'd like to talk about <laughs> <laughs> and that seems to be uh, as far as i can deduce from all the very mediocre reviews or even like very shitty reviews it's getting and that is the new sean penn film flag day flag day yeah
1: well you know back in the days before you know we had movies we had motion pictures and then they became (laughs) movies and then they became talkies and then they became maybe content or television or streamies or whatever you would like to call it but i think since champagne graced the cross set again with a very poorly made film They're all called flaggies now. (laughs) Like, this is the new standard of cinema. It's kind of like, he changed the game, you know? It's like, it's not the same ever since I've seen Flag Day, which is one of the most hilariously bad films that I've ever seen maybe in my life. And you all know that there's this kind of magic intersection between really, really bad, but then still so funny, or it has a couple of elements that make it so bad that it's good. Often films, you hope that they're so bad they're good, but often they're not, you know, they're just so bad that they're bad, which always sucks a lot when you have to endure those films. And, and Sean Penn, he just did the impossible, you know. He made me laugh for two hours straight. He made me so energized, even though the film is absolute rubbish. And the whole time you're wondering, like, how the hell did this film ever make it to this edition of Cannes, which is so historic, and has two years of cinema compressed in one edition.
2: I want you to tell us what this movie is about. But first, you probably you were also there the last time that he brought a film to Cannes.
1: Yes, I was
2: there as well. The last phase in 2016. With Bardem yeah. and with Theron, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was the time when Charlize Theron and Champagne were still in a relationship. And she actually apparently broke up with him because the <laughs> film was so shitty
2: which is actually a really great management decision.
1: That while the 20 minutes
2: of booing were going on <laughs> in the cinema.
1: Yeah, so Chompan had like one of the worst flops in Cannes history in 2016. So everybody already kind of braced themselves when he re-emerged on the Crozet this year with Flag Day. The last phase, is 2016 film, is kind of like this whole white savior film about like, uh, I guess, journalists or something fixing things somewhere in Africa it's like the most forgettable film the only thing that you remember is that just everything is off and this year he went for the intimate you know he went for an intimate story so what he did is he adapted a book a non-fiction book by this journalist about her dad who's called John Vogel who was kind of like this scam artist almost like catch me if you can but then by a dude that just fails all the time so He's trying to bluff and lie and and scheme his way to the American dream and get a lot of money and shit. But the only thing that he really gets is death and, you know, struggle and like mob guys beating him up while their children are looking and just really sad shit. And Sean Penn is playing this dad, Joan Vogel. And then he cast his own children in like the kind of other roles. There are his kids also in the film. And they have to endure this broken family that's broken because he's perpetually in debt and moving and starting a new enterprise and lying again. And it just seems like such an incredible vanity project that he didn't only cast himself, but then also his kids in these roles. And it tries to do like a 1990s crime drama, neo-noir kind of thing, but then also combined with a Terrence Malick poetic voiceover but the shitty thing is there's nothing noirish or exciting about the film and there's nothing poetic or deep. So you just have both of these things coming together and then you have Chopin who's just like he's smearing his way through the whole film and he has the best one liners. He's really obsessed with Chopin. <laughs> Sean Penn, Chopin, Chopin. I now realizing how deep this goes. You this know. is a
2: masterpiece.
1: Yeah, maybe it's a great film. Like there's a line in the film where Chopin goes like, Where are my fucking Chopin records? <laughs> <laughs> and he's like a cokehead, super obsessed with Chopin, and all of it just doesn't make any sense at all. It just feels very off and it's very bad. Uh so I had a blast. It was great. You know, it's very welcome to have some of these films over here. Will
2: this be a film for your contrarian's corner in the, in the near future?
1: Well, you know, I was thinking about this. I like, <laughs> Oh no. <laughs> No, 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 I like a fair assessment is that I feel like Sean Penn is also sometimes trying to do a Clint Eastwood, but he just has such little grip on the cinematic language that just none of it adds up or makes sense. So I think not. So yeah, now, I mean, we're starting now with like the worst of the fast. There's a couple of other films that are maybe equally as bad, but less funny. Which is arguably worse. However, there's also some ridiculously good films like Stupid Good, so it's a, it's an interesting mixed bag where you have like huge banners where I'm like totally blown away, and then you have your Flag Day, and it's great. There's very little in between, which I actually like. I don't want to go to Cannes for the film that you know is kind of fine and you will never think about for the next three years. I'm gonna fondly remember seeing flag day on the 10th of july in 2021 and it's like uh it's almost like a national holiday for me now
2: okay so let's take that flag down from that poll now Mm -hmm. i -hmm. made a list because my fomo is huge i made a little list which is not a little list as some of you may expect of the films that i would have liked to see if i would have been there sad smiley face
1: if you could be watching him through my eyes, what? <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> well, of course, there was the opening film. Leo Tarax Annette.
1: First time I fell in love.
0: Woke up next to the girl. And escaped fast and far. The Anne has changed me. What I see in her is obvious. What she sees a maze. Hmm, that's a little more puzzling. One, two, three, four.
2: We've spoken very lovingly about Carac in the past in our Oscar podcast, of course. Yeah. The responses to that film have been very mixed. It, it's a musical, as far as I can deduce, with yeah. Adam Driver and
1: Marion Cotillard. Marion Cotillard,
2: of course. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's a film I already saw it in the Netherlands before it played here in, in Cannes because there was a small possibility that Caracs was doing interviews which he notoriously often doesn't do. So they wanted all the Dutch journalists going to camp to already see the film, so they might have a chance at speaking to him at the beginning of the festival. It didn't happen, which, by the way, is fine. I like it when directors make a choice and say, no, no press for me. It's better than the awkward uh, sitting at the table, like the director doesn't want to speak to you at all, and you just see the regret and the pain. That is always very awful. It's a film that really grew on me, to be honest, because when I saw it, which is already two weeks ago, I guess, I appreciated bits of it, but it didn't really work for me all the way through. And now it's it's really growing on me. It's a very strange musical. The music is by Spark. Oh
2: yeah, of course. Yeah. Love Spark.
1: It's already kind of like they have a very non-conventional way of approaching poppy music.
2: And they're also credited with the screenplay, right?
1: Yeah, there's a bit of theirs in the screenplay as well. And it's like there's so much stuff about, I guess, partially Karak's interrogating his own life, his own position in the film landscape. It's about Adam Driver. He's like a bad boy comedian, kind of like a contrarian kind of type. And he falls in love with Marion Cotillard, who's like an opera singer. So there's already this clash between high and lowbrow culture and between man and woman. And then together, they become the parents of this child called Annette, which is the titular character of the film. And it's so much about guilt and kind of like inheriting sins and passing them along and also abuse and consent. There's a whole bit about Me Too and about problematic male geniuses and how the media and the industry entertainment world treat them and kind of deal with them and still keep them in positions of power. So there's a lot to unpack. And at the beginning, I thought it was sometimes too much, like it was overreaching. But then the only things that I really remember of the film are just really intimate, small moments that you can only get when you make a film in this way, like do the musical thing and just have the actors sing while they're having sex. Like there's a scene where Adam Driver is giving Conan linguist to Marion Cotillard while they're singing a love song, as in a musical, (laughs) and he's like in between her legs and raising his hats and singing a couple of lines, and then he goes back down on her and that's kind of like it's a really funny, silly moment, but it's also hits pretty deep actually so. Yeah, I'm, I'm really warming up to that film. It took me two weeks, but here we are. <laughs>
2: hey, sometimes that happens. I'll on to the next one. I'm going through the list as Khan wants me to go through it. So <laughs> sure. so it's the it's probably the high rollers, and then we're going to go back, uh, smaller and smaller and smaller, I think. The movie I will only describe as using Christ as a dildo. Bartolomea, has done something
0: that you are Avez-vous de l'affection Ouais. Ce qui se passe ici est un blasphème. Ce qui compte, le savent déjà. Si cette sœur est coupable du blasphème dont vous l'accusez, elle est bûcher. Mais des accusations extraordinaires exigent des preuves extraordinaires.
2: Je ne sais pas comment Dieu fait arriver les choses. Je sais seulement qu'il accomplit sa volonté à travers moi.
0: Tu dois faire des aveux complets. Ah Renonce à ta vanité. vous
1: <laughs> On comprend pas toujours les instruments de Dieu.
0: Peut-être a-t-il mis Benedetta en transe, ou bien Dieu nous a envoyé une folle qui débite des sottises pour servir ses desseins.
1: Benedetta. Yeah, well, this is a film that's not warming on me yet. I really love Paul Verhoeven's films. And this is kind of a film that was on his mind, I guess, for a long time. Many people will probably know that Paul Verhoeven is like really into Jesus Christ and Christianity. Uh, He wrote a book called uh, Jesus of Nazareth. He was part of the Jesus Christ seminar, which was mostly philosophers and theologians. It's like together. And he was the only person that was not from these kind of like academic backgrounds that joined this seminar. So He really knows his shit. And this film about two lesbian nuns in the 17th century in in this coventry in Pescia in uh, Toscana in Italy. And it's kind of a clever film about power relations and structures in Christianity at that time. And like how the coventry relates to the like bishop in Milan or something. And there's kind of like everybody's scheming and it's very much a slight deconstruction of Religion and that they use miracles more as kind of like a business model than as this very authentic relationship with God or greater powers beyond. But something about it didn't really struck with me that well. I think it's kind of too still, too clean, too polished, maybe for a genuine Paul Verhoeven film. I just like his films like Flesh Plus Blood, you know, when they're also in, in medieval times, when they're just dirty and and really kind of cheeky and ballsy and more nasty and more meaty and juicy. And this one felt too sterile for me. There's a lot of discussions in Cannes now, especially with British, more Puritan critics, I guess, about screening sexuality and screening sex on film and having an old white guy like Paul Verhoeven screening and filming lesbian sex scenes. But it feels like a kind of fake controversy because there's not that much in the film, for me, that seems controversial, but maybe this is just our Dodge kinda for to used maybe to those things and maybe for other audiences this will really hit like a fucking brick
2: for me as the man not in can it felt very much like like uh reading the controversy and the whole blasphemy bullshit and uh Verhoeven reacting to it because he was asked during the press conference if would think about using an intimacy advisor he had the feeling that his actors felt very at ease with the sex scenes that they were doing and that his camera person was a woman uh, he wasn't really thinking about the male gaze aspect of his film. And it felt very much to me that even though that might be a cop-out on Verhoeven's part in some way, on the other hand, I thought, well, this really reads like the media looking for something uh, and projecting it on a film that, well, as you may say, isn't really <laughs> dealing with those issues. No,
1: I have to think a lot about our episode with Bashir. right? If you're talking about these gazes, it's about, I guess, acknowledging the power structures and playing with the balance. And this is what the film does, though. And I think that the actresses, they seem very much in control. It feels very sly and self-aware. They're all great. It feels really playful and funny often at times. Like you're referencing the Maria statue and that is a fun scene. But then for me, maybe it doesn't go far enough. And maybe that point where I want him to bring those actresses, they could have used an intimacy coordinator. But at the kind of safe-ish point where they're at now, I don't see the need to address these kind of questions with him. It seems like you're pulling at something that isn't really there yet even though the film has the potential to go there. This is exactly why I'm kind of disappointed with the film. I'm like, well, then go there as well, because now it just seems like almost
2: like it's too tame. Before we go on, I'd like to address one thing. I'm not going to throw you under the bus of the English language, but you mean a convent and not a Coventry. I'm only saying that, so right now I can insert a voice clip of Colin Farrell saying Coventry in the film In Bruges. Here it comes. Go take him to hideout. Go take him to hideout.
0: Where? Go take him to hideout in fucking Bruges.
2: You can hide out in Croydon. Mm. Or Coventry. Thank you, Colin Farrell. All right. On to the... One of my favorite scenes. We're on a job here. We could have been at a job in Crichton or fucking Coventry. <laughs> <laughs> okay, on to the next one. There are so many names coming up in this list that we've discussed before on the podcast.
1: Yeah, we're a pretty prescient
2: podcast, you know. We're pre- <laughs> but also, Can seems to be very much listening to us. Yeah. The next film is from a director you mentioned on, I think, our first real episode, Mia Hudson love Yay. and uh, her new film, Berkman Island. Island. Yeah. yeah. So you know this island? It's kind of special, right?
0: It's the island of the director. You and mommy like a lot.
1: This place is perfect for working. Easy
0: to live in. Wow. You <gasps> do realise
2: we're going to sleep in the bed, but it should from from a marriage film that made millions of people divorce. Oh shit. Fuck, oh, sorry.
1: We have to maybe sleep in the other bedroom.
0: I want to be with you. I never mention you to my girlfriend,
2: but she's jealous of you.
1: You know how hard writing is for me? It's it's torture, it's self-inflicted agony, it's...
2: Do something else.
1: Like what? Full-time housewife? I really
2: thought you would encourage
0: me. Are you angry? Why are not me? I don't know. It's just life.
1: Yeah, I really like this film. This is one that also had to warm up on me, but it's only been two days since I've seen it, so it's making very fast strides. It's a very cheeky film, I would say. It's about a couple uh, who are both directors, and they are on a retreat on Vare, the island in Sweden where Bergman, Inmar Bergman, used to live and made quite a lot of his films, like Scenes of a Marriage is shot there. A couple of other films are also shot there. So some of his most iconic work is shot on this island and is definitely conceived on this island as well. So apparently this is like a big touristy kind of uh, boom for this island that they do these kind of Inmar Bergman retreats and tours and there's the Inmar Bergman safari <laughs> where people go on the bus and go past all of these locations where he shot something and then that is like this is the house that was in persona but it's not there anymore because they deconstructed the set it was only a facade and it's like just a very non-tour as well which is funny because it plays with the presence or the shadow of Inmar Bergman that's Loom in over all these young directors that want to go there and make
2: films. Deconstructing a set of persona is also very, I know how presentious this sounds, but it's also very funny in relation to that film. Yeah,
1: that's the whole thing. Like, it's like everybody has a Bergman like, uh, uh, on this kind of legendary status, house awesome him to the highest esteem. And then this film just kind of shows the weird, natural conclusion of that, where he just becomes this kind of very hollowed out facade it's kind of like baudrillard meets bergman where it's like there's this this ghost fake version of him lingering around but it's not really him and there's his presence is kind of like a fluke Uh, it's like the wizard of Oz, maybe almost so these filmmakers are on the island and they want to make their own important films and maybe bergman's you know uh heritage can help them with that and then unwillingly they they're kind of reconstructing or the kind of reenacting scenes of a marriage because of course they get into their own quarrels and their own relationship is kind of like uh hitting some some rough patches and then the film just becomes this kind of nesting narrative and there's narratives in the film within the film and it's cute it's funny it's sly it's kind of sad as well at first it seemed almost too conceived but then The more I think about it, it actually really works for me. And this is something that I often have with Mian's love, that these are kind of films that just keep growing on you because she is so generous. That's also what we talked about in the podcast, right? That she's super generous when she looks at people, which is also why I want her to make a film about my own life, because she knows those nuances of how you aspire to be something and you're not. And she acknowledges both of these things. And she also does in this film so it's kind of like a drama film but it plays out like a really good comedy
2: actually well looking forward to that
0: yeah maybe we can now move the conversation more to find out what you do hugo day to day what is your schedule other than just watching films why is it important that you as a film critic are physically there and sort of what that entails yeah
1: that's a good question so and um, this year i'm in the Fipresci jury which is the international federation of film critics who give a prize to the best film in three competitions the main competition which is where i'm in as a jury member and then you have the uncertain regard which is kind of like the official sidebar of can and then you also have the parallel sections can uh, the realisateurs which is the director's fortnight and the Cement de la critique which is the critics week so there's like the five Presci has three juries over here so I do the main competition, which are 24 films right now. So that means two or three competition films per day that I need to see, because I, of course, need to see all of them for the jury deliberations to pick a winner. So my planning this year is somehow very relaxed and easy, because I know always that I have to see one or two or three films at least per day, and I have no choice. So all the rest, I just kind of plan around that. I also try to discover as much new films or new makers or things that have my own interest and fascination. I try to seek those out as well. And then I just kind of plan around that. So sometimes, like, I see five films a day. Sometimes I see only a couple of films a day and I need to write or do an interview or something else. Because I'm also, of course, writing for my magazine. A big uh, point that Ken also makes is that when you are here, you have to be writing about Ken. Otherwise, you don't get invited back <laughs> to the festival. We're all in the, the spinning wheel or, or the ferry wheel or something. You need to prove your worth, basically, every year again and again. So I'm writing a lot of dispatches. Basically, what we're doing now in audio form, I try to do in text as well. Maybe not as successfully as this, but that that's also part of the game. And then, to be honest, the rest is also just chilling, man. I mean, we're at the, the Côte d'Azur, we are at the Riviera. I'm also just trying to enjoy myself, have good lunches or good dinners, meet people because it's been, uh, for most people here, two years since we've seen each other. And I also have uh, film critic friends and other friends from over the whole world that you only see at places like this because they're big enough to draw people out from all over the world. So it's also catching up and talking and formulating ideas about the films and testing your ideas. That testing really helps when you put it down into words because you have had some feedback and you kind of had some more deliberation before you start writing about this
2: is that social aspect of it like the i wouldn't say the networking but having drinks with people from the industry and meeting people and uh, seeing very familiar faces or familiar faces it does that feel like it's more prescient this year due to the fact that we've been so locked up
1: mm, that's a good question well there's less people first of all at the festival so it already feels kind of different, but that's also a good thing because it's less crowded. This place can feel very cramped, like you have to elbow your way into every restaurant or every party. And now there's a bit more space for the people that are here. So that's nice. What I do think is that, of course, it's very difficult when you, you haven't seen some people for two years and there's been a pandemic in between you kind of have to go through the obvious cliches of socializing and talking about that part before you can get (laughs) into something maybe a bit deeper or something. I would say that it's sometimes also in the way of having a good conversation. And there's also many cliches in the rhetoric of how people talk about films now at the festival, like, now more than ever, we need a film (laughs) that really establishes our love for cinema and shows how film can shape our lives or something. You know, it's kind of like that's a very easy way to approach all of these films. But what is kind of funny, though, is that most of the films that are playing in the competition seem very meta. You know, we're talking about Bergman Island. We're talking about Annette. Also, the Nadav Lapid film, uh, Achet's Knee. I'd like so many more They're all about films in films and people making films. And that's been a cliche for a very long time. But for a lot of people, that rings very true right now. Because at the one hand, art and cinema has been totally, you know, sidelined and threatened. And at the other hand, it seems also like one of the most essential things that we can have in life right now. You know, the thing that keeps us sane. We've all been thinking and saying this and this tension kind of plays out at the festival as well so that's quite interesting to see
0: tom what about you why would someone like you a programmer of classics at lab want to jump on the ferris wheel of car <laughs>
2: Other than being a lover of film, what what purpose does it serve to you? Well, for me, uh, apart from my role within the film industry, I am very fascinated about the sort of festival vibe. You know, I've been in a jury in Locarno. Uh, I've uh, worked at a couple of theater festivals. I know how the sort of weird bubble that you get into with people that you know or you very easily meet new people is very interesting and can be very addictive as well i know a lot of people uh, especially uh, a festival programmer or director that i won't name but i love that guy and he, he he always seems to be very much addicted to the whole festival experience and i always see him going to every festival each year
1: it's not Hugo. It's not. It's not. Hugo. <laughs> Might as well be. I know. I know the push and pull of the festival life. It's like a, it's like a tra- traveling circus, which is why the Ferris wheel is also quite a apt, you know, metaphor for it.
2: It is a circus. I know that experience of going in there and then coming out and feeling almost like like the world you get back into seems almost more like like a facade or, or like leaving a dream and going back to reality. So that does speak to me very much. Apart from that, I mean, I love watching films and I always look at the program and I think there's very, very interesting films in there also because as a programmer, I try to look for new films that I can use to do retrospectives around or big programs around. Uh, I mean, if I look at the program now there are so many films in there that could spark my interest for doing yet another Wes Anderson retrospective for instance Uh, although uh, all the messages that I've been reading about uh, the French Dispatch which is playing there right now uh, seems as though uh, Wes Anderson uh, has gone on the Quentin Tarantino train of making movies that feel like he's making movies inspired by the movies that he made (laughs) It began as a holiday. Eager to escape a bright future on the Great Plains, Arthur Howitzer, Jr. transformed the series of travelogue columns into the French Dispatch, a factual weekly report on the subjects of world politics, the
0: arts, high and low, and diverse stories of human interest. You don't think it's almost too seedy this time? No, I don't. For decent people. It's supposed to be charming. He assembled a team of the
2: best expatriate journalists of his time. Berenson, Sazarek, Kremens, Roebuck Wright. These were his people.
0: Just try to make it sound like you wrote it that way on purpose.
1: What I can tell about it is that I was kind of skeptic about the film because I also felt like he was doing more of the same with every new film. Film and it felt like diminishing returns. So beforehand, I really wanted him to prove me wrong and surprise me or take me by surprise. And then I saw the film and yes, it is more like what you would expect from Wes Anderson. But then again, it's so meticulous. It's so detailed. It's so playful. And there's still, I think, enough sincere emotion, like an emotion undercurrent underneath it that it just really... Uh, amaze me again and give me this kind of joyous sense of wonder so he really warmed the skeptic's heart over here so that that's good maybe news for everybody that's that's quite a feat coming from me in the contrarian corner you know this is uh this is a great accomplishment (laughs) for Wes Anderson so he did it again he done did it again
2: (laughs) well yeah like like and apart from like the newer films of course there's quite some interesting classics on the on the program as well that I always, that are all, most of the time very hard to find in their program. And then I was looking them up now very specifically. And um, I mean, if you look at the, this year, there's a Powell and Pressburger being screened, uh, fully restored. I know where I'm going. I've never seen that film. I love Powell and Pressburger. Yeah. Uh, I'm a huge fan of A Matter of Life and Death, which is just also a very underseen uh, movie, which is actually in Britain regarded as one of the best films ever ever yeah. made
1: yeah, Slavoj Zizek never did something about that film, so it's like...
2: (laughs) Which is a bit crazy because it's about uh, I believe a first world war pilot that dies uh, mistakenly uh, or actually goes on living mistakenly, and it's this weird clash between the heavenly and earth, uh, and it's really a beautiful film. And there's A Restoration of La Double Vie de Veronique, which was the first Christoph Kieslowski movie that I've ever watched. Kieslowski, of course the director who made uh, the Decalogue series, which is actually maybe a bit of a spoiler for a program that i want to do in the future i really want to do a Kislovsky uh, retrospective someday so if i see like a 4k restoration of la double video veronique <laughs> rubbing
1: your hands <laughs> yeah i'm like
2: oh my god there is a reason for me now to bring those films to our cinema
1: it's funny that you mentioned those um those classics because every year when i'm here i think like this is great and it will be so cool to go and visit these films but I never have the time this year, especially. Normally, with the outlet, the magazine that I write for, I would be here with three other critics that also write uh, together with me on the daily dispatches that we do. And now I'm on my own uh, virtually, so I need to do most of that by myself. So I'm like, I have so much more of like a workload trying to cover the whole festival that those are the kind of films that I can never watch here. I just don't have the time.
2: That is such a shame because I have you ever watched uh, Francesco Ghilare di Dio? No, never. It's actually a movie about St. Francis by uh, Roberto Rossellini, mm. the neo-realist 50s filmmaker. Maybe the most poetic one of the filmmakers working at that time. Yeah,
1: very lyrical. Yeah, yeah
2: very lyrical. And in the end, he... he of course, he's also very much known for the relationship that he got with uh, Ingrid Bergman to bring in that other, other Bergman into this conversation.
1: Who's also buried on uh, Faroe Island, by the and
2: way. And who was in Autumn Sonata. Like yeah. there, there is like this, uh, which is a film by Bergman with Bergman. Uh, that's always like, <laughs> I remember being a very young, pretentious child and thinking <laughs> if it you would know. be possible... Which I am still, which I still am, and I'm thinking about: Would it be possible that Ingrid Bergman would star in an Ingmar Bergman film? And of course, it has already happened. <laughs> Ingrid Bergman, of course, known from being one of the best actresses ever. And one of my huge crushes in cinema, she was, of course, in Casablanca. And she uh, did she make the right choice at the end of Casablanca? She did. But after her career in Hollywood, she traveled to Europe to start a new career. And there she met Rossellini. And they had this very controversial relationship because they were both married and they just decided... This, we are such a great creative couple. And they made a couple of films together, like Stromboli, and which is a wonderful film about a woman going to an island and not enjoying it because everybody's Italian. <laughs> I really love that film. But the first, one of the first Rossellinis that I saw was this movie about St. Francis, and it's now screening there. And it's this really strange, deeply poetic film. Uh, a lot of amateur actors playing this story about St. Francis. Mm. And it has one of the. M- most touching scenes I've ever seen on cinema, and I can't remember what the scene is about. I just have this vague experience of it being one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen, but I can't remember what the scene was about. So if you can go, <laughs> <laughs> I doubt it. Make <laughs> this your only 4K restoration that you see there. <laughs> you can tell me what it, what it really is. Oh, this
1: yeah. is why we need you here next year, Tom. <laughs> exactly. like, so you can go I can to these
2: films. Come running out of a film and saying, I've just seen a new <laughs> realist <laughs> masterpiece
1: yeah. again. And then, like, next year we'll be on the corsette together and and we're like having dinner or something. And I ask you, What do you think of the new Champagne film? <laughs> <That's> <laughs> my, what do you think of the new Flaggy by Champagne? And then you say, like, dude, I've seen a classic flaggy in the the (laughs) neo-early style. It's like a black and white flaggy you've never seen before. <laughs> it's going to be a great dinner. I I can already picture
2: are looking forward to it very
0: much. <laughs> would you consider, so obviously this podcast is celebrating cinema, are film festivals to you sort of the ultimate celebration of cinema? Yeah. Or would that be too far of a stretch?
1: No, no, no. No, I, I definitely agree. It's like what I said before, that it can also be a cliche. Like right now we really need to celebrate everything that's happening here because of you know, we all know, but there's a, you know, there's of course a of truth in that, you know, it is absolutely absurd. But then at the other end, I'm also thinking like, but what is better in life than being here and just seeing all of those films when they're like really as fresh as they can be. And these are like huge, huge films in our circles as well. You know, there's like a lot at stakes sometimes. So Sometimes I'm in the the screening room and I just get goosebumps from the idea that I am there at that moment. I'm in the first couple of hundred people that ever sees that film in their life. And they're huge, you know, They're, they're not small films. So yeah, I think there's something celebratory about it. And I think it is to be cherished. And I understand the sentiment and why people really wanted to go here this year and flocked here. And it also explains why we're all salivating (laughs) in test tubes. But it explains a lot about it. And there's now also a couple of films that we didn't even talk about. But, you know, as Tom and I are big fans of crying at the movies, I've had those experiences here again as well. There's a new film by uh, Ryuzoka uh, Amaguchi, who's slowly becoming maybe one of the biggest directors from Japan at the moment. He had like Asako 1 and 2 also played in the Netherlands. And he had a film in Berlin this year in the competition. And now he also has a film in the Cannes competition called Drive My Car based on the Murikami short uh, story, which also heavily features Uncle Vanya, the Chekhov play. So it's already like intertextually super dense. It's three hours long. It's so incredibly gentle. It's so emotionally intense, but sincere and beautiful. Like I cried literally the whole last hour of the film. It was just like waterworks and sighs and and shocks and of wonder and awe. And yeah, that's the kind of film that makes me realize like this is why we're all here. I guess yeah.
2: If if there can be crying, uh, I I'm there. Right. I mean, I am now really looking forward to uh, to join you and all the all my other friends in the film industry uh, at Cannes. You know. Uh, Hopefully next year I'll, I'll I'll be crying alongside you. <laughs> <laughs> I think it will happen.
1: And Elliot, you need to come over here as well. Like this yeah. year, Spike Lee's in the jury, which is probably one of your biggest inspirations, yeah. I guess. In the field he's of the, the pres- president, isn't he? Yeah, he's the president of the main jury. So that's like the most prestigious jury spot that you can probably get in the world when it comes to film. Like Spike Lee said that he's going to give a prize to the film that he deems like the most politically you know urgent and that's also a discussion to be had you know what's what's more important at the festival like this is it the aesthetics of the film is it the cinematic qualities or is it how it addresses what we're going through in the world right now and there's a couple of films that have overlap in these things but there's also a couple of films that seem to be in their own really specific spot where they're just really self-reflexive or something else But yeah, it's gonna be exciting.
0: It's important to add, right? He's the first black man to be the president of the jury. Yes. Am I right in saying that? Yes,
1: that's true, which is also quite of course a big deal. And that's that's also a whole other conversation to be had. Like Khan is great, but it's also a very conservative kind of bastion of a kind of old cinema which explains why a Jean Penn or Nanni Moretti, who also made a really awful film, how they can still be in the main competition is just because they have the Cannes stamp of approval, so they have to be here. But yeah, that, that is also part of the pleasure at being in Cannes. is like the funnest thing about being here is, I guess, also pissing on the festival and taking it for granted and hating it. But it's undeniable that we all love it as well.
0: Yeah. Tom, what, what do you have for us for the film club pick? Obviously, we're taking a month hiatus, whether we do a second part to the Cannes special. But what should people go and watch at lab? What are your top picks?
2: There are a couple of things coming up. There's a Here We Go Again program that we did as a reopening, which is all the suggestions that people gave us. A couple of new films are coming in there. So we have Ghost Dog by Jim Jarmusch. Actually, it's a quite a good selection of movies by Black Filmmakers, there's a uh, Tukibuki Black Girl nice. and Pariah by the D. Reese, which is actually not part of that program, but which is part of Pride programming. So nice. we're doing a whole week of different Pride films. With uh, Portrait of a Lady on Fire is coming back. This is where you should tell your oh, anecdote. Yeah, actually. talking yeah. about
1: <laughs> like why we all should be in Cannes. A couple of days ago, during the finale of the uh, European Championship of Soccer, I was at a a party of a friend of mine. Has this like super lavish, lush uh, villa that looks out over the sea here in Cannes. Of course,
2: of course, you have such a friend. Yeah,
1: she's <laughs> she works for a sales agent and they have all the money, you know. Like us poor journalists, we can only visit the parties, but we can never give them. But Adele Anel was there as well, and we were watching uh, the soccer match, and a good friend of mine is an Italian film critic. So we were talking with Adele of Portrait of Lady on Fire. So I'm already like, and she's like, yeah, I don't really like soccer. So like, who are you rooting for? So the Italian critic said like, yeah, well, yeah, obviously Italy. And she was like, oh, well, in that case, I'm also for Italy. So maybe it's because of her that Italy won, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but that's also gone for you you know it's like uh, you're just watching uh, Fubo with one of the biggest actresses of the moment that you really admire yes
2: yeah, she's, she's fantastic in Port Portrait of a Lady on Fire to go back to the program it's uh, that that film is in there my own private Idaho also has an anniversary Great this film. year I wanted to bring that back as part of it and the movie that always returns to our cinema because people wanted to see it over and over again is Luca Guadagnino's Call Me By Your yeah. so the, the those are the films that, that I would greatly advise everybody to see. So yeah, that's that's what we're doing right now. So um
1: Well, you almost make me jealous for me not being there, Tom. Almost. <laughs>
2: almost. Yes. I've beaten Cannes Film Festival. <laughs>
1: <laughs> see, I have to say
0: you give them a good run for their money with, with the selection of films that are showing at lab. So thank you. But yeah, that concludes our summer special. We'll obviously be taking a month off, but it'll give you a chance to watch hopefully as many films at lab. Otherwise, Feel free to spread the word of the podcast and we'll be returning for a a big number 10 episode. It won't be the finale, thankfully. But otherwise, take care and enjoy the movies. Thank you, Uh, Elliot. See
2: see you guys later. Ciao. Ciao. See you in Coventry or fucking (laughs) Brighton. From Can to
1: Coventry, a podcast by (laughs) Love111.